You know, pride, I think pride, you would agree with me, is an ugly thing. Um, whether you see it in your own heart or whether you see it in the lives of other people, pride is, is quite ugly. And uh, it can be quite expensive in terms of how it destroys and disunites people. Whereas humility is really quite a lovely thing. Humility is, is an attractive quality. We're not surprised that God would value humility above all things. In other words, when the question is, who is greatest in the kingdom of God? The answer is the one who has humbled himself like a child. God highly values humility, saying that the one who walks in humility is greatest in the kingdom of God. Greatest. Well, you know, last week we saw Jesus put that child in the middle of the disciples and said, hey, this is greatness right here, like a child. Not success, position, or prestige, or power, but it's humility and dependence. Well, this week, you know, last week Jesus describes what greatness is, and this week he's going to show what it looks like in life. And remember now, in Matthew 18, this discourse is really like um, the Sermon on the Mount in many forms. He's really instructing the church. This is what the church is to be. This is what you are to be like as part of God's kingdom. And so he's going to show us what greatness looks like. And so I want, you to, I want you to think of a few words. I want you to think of accepting and protecting and repenting. I'll explain these more in detail. But accepting and repenting, uh, accepting and protecting and repenting, these are kind of three portraits that we see in this text where Jesus is instructing the church Here's what it looks like in your life. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, here is what it will look like. And then I'm going to ask you throughout the sermon, how great do you think you are in terms of how God views greatness? So if you will turn with me to Matthew 18, we'll read verses 5 through 9. Matthew 18, 5 through 9. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This passage could create some space in the church, I imagine. Maybe we won't have a parking problem, Larry. Aren't you glad you're not preaching this one? So accepting, protecting, repenting... So how does greatness look like in your life, in the life of this church? Well, one is accepting. You see in verse 5, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And if you were here last week, Jesus was speaking about this child. He kind of goes more general now. He says, whoever would receive one such child. He's, he's speaking more generally to children across the board. He's also speaking more figuratively. In other words, he's not speaking about a literal child, I don't believe, but, but about the characteristics of a child. In fact, last week, you remember when he said that uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to turn and become like this child. You know, there's features of a child, um, humility and dependence, that 
that help us understand how to enter the kingdom of God. So he was using a child last week of an example to imitate. Like a child, imitate a child and you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't think he's looking at this child in this text as an example to imitate, but an example of one to whom we ought to receive. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So Jesus is talking about the nature of the church and how we receive people, and to receive one such child. So I think the characteristics of a child that come to my mind in this context would be children can be um, ungrateful. They can be just demanding, producing little, expecting a lot. I mean, children can be, um, they're very weak. They can't add to your value. They can't add to your life. They can't enhance your business potential. Uh, Children can be um, draining. They take great resources. I know what you're thinking right now. That guy's a child hater. I'm not a child hater. There's an analogy here that Jesus is driving at. Children can be draining. They're unappreciative. They're demanding. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is his point is simply this, that as the kingdom of heaven on earth, that's what the church is. The church is a colony of heaven, an outpost of glory, and the way we receive the difficult people, the different people, those who are culturally or ethnically or educationally or financially different than us, those differences often cause about division, separation. We have one church, but we have 50 groups in here. And he's saying whoever receives one such child, even the difficult child, in my name, you have received me. The, 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 the low of stature, perhaps the uneducated, perhaps the um, less powerful, the more needy, the complainer, those who are grumbling, those who are high-demand people. How you receive them, Jesus is saying in my name, is an indication of the greatness that this church or we as believers have. Now, when I say receive one such child, the word receive, it doesn't mean to greet. It doesn't mean to be friendly. It means to actually open your lives up to have them invest in you, because a lot of times you don't think they even can, and you invest in their lives. To receive would indicate much more of an opening of your life to them. Alexander McLaren, a Scottish uh, minister of the 19th century. I've checked all my quotes. Ray didn't take one of them. Thank you. I think I have it here. He says this, to receive a child in my name is to have a sympathetic appreciation and to be ready to welcome into heart and home those who are lowly in their own and in the world's estimate, but princes and princesses of Christ's court and kingdom. I mean, that's how we're to receive one another. That's the mark of greatness, that we don't have, our friendships aren't dictated by a certain ethnicity or, or educational awareness or financial capacity, but, but there's this cross-section of friendships that we have. So if you see greatness that way, the opening of your heart and home to people that are different than you, how great do you think you are? What, what would be an indicator of your greatness? when you scan your list of friendships, when you walk into a room like this, do you scrutinize to whom you want to speak based upon perhaps they're easy to talk with, they add value to my life. We have certain commonalities with children or education or philosophy on life. I mean, do you look and pursue those who are easiest to get along with, they're funny or they're popular? 
I mean, do you tend to avoid the one who perhaps is the complaining or the grumbler or the difficult? Or, or maybe it's along theological lines. Maybe it's along educational lines. What is it that draws you to people? Jonathan Lehman is, a, is an elder up at Capitol Hill Church, and he wrote this about loving, not just loving the church, but really loving the people in the church. He says this, Christ has put his name on immature Christians. Christians who speak too much at members' meetings. Christians who wrongly give their unbaptized children communion. Christians who love shallow praise songs. Christ has identified himself with Christians whose theology is underdeveloped and imperfect. Christ points to Christians who wrongly oppose biblical leadership structures and the practice of church discipline and says, they represent me. Sin against them and you sin against me. Receive them and you receive me. I mean, I mean, it's, that's the test of greatness. In fact, let me give you another diagnostic. How do you handle little kids, literal children? I mean, across the board in America, the hardest place to get people to volunteer is the nursery. Why? Well, there's reasons I gave before. I mean, they don't give you anything. They don't respond. They don't thank you. They demand. They mess their pants. You've got to work at keeping them happy. Or teaching little kids, it's difficult. Why? They don't thank you. They don't catch it. You do all this work, and there seems to be very little response from them. I would just, on a sidebar, say that our nursery is busting at the seams, and we do need volunteers for that. And this is a good test. I'm not trying to paint you in a corner, but it is a good test because it's a hard ministry. But to receive a child in my name is to receive me. So what do we do about this? If you're convicted like I am, so I go through my life and try to assess what is the cross-section of people in my life? Am I receiving people in his name as I ought to receive them? And I, I want to I put this question before you, or this idea. If you look at your life and your stature and your position in life, maybe your social prestige, maybe your financial security, uh, maybe your educational status, if you look at those things that separate you from others and you see them as marks of your hard work and ingenuity, you will tend to look down on people. And you will tend to see them as not having tried or worked as hard as you. But if you see your status and your wealth and your education and your position and your sophistication, if you see those as gifts of God that have been given to you, to be used for his glory and his kingdom, then you will not tend to look down on people the same. You'll say to yourself, what do I have that I haven't received? And why should I boast as though I did not receive it? You will humble yourself. Think about it. That's what draws a social cohesion in this church. That's what brings together a unity, is this willingness to recognize that what we have, we've been given, it breaks down that division of they're not like me ethnically or culturally or socially or educationally. They're not like me. And so there's that division. But when you see all these things as gifts of God, the cohesion forms because we're all kind of centered around Christ and the gospel. You know, the world knows how to gather together. I mean, you can have a sports team that you're fans of or, or the way that you, 
you live life or the education you've had or the social status, the rung that you're on, you can look at those things and you, you can find commonality or the Rotary Club or the Garden Club. So the world knows how to gather together, but it's always around external commonalities. The church is to be great and different. And our commonality, our unity is to be around the gospel. That Christ is this gravitational center pulling us to himself because we're all children that need to be received by God. When you begin to understand the nature of the gospel, and even, by the way, the threat to a church like ours is we can have a gospel unity, but it's, it can be as one book, a new book coming out called Compelling Community, it can be the gospel plus. Yeah, we have Jesus together, but we're also single mothers. Or we have Jesus together, but we're also seniors. You know, whereas that, that can be mirrored by the world. What we want to be is a gospel-revealing community that there's a unity that is founded only in Jesus Christ. Our common love for an absolute need, like we just sang, like we just sang, all I need, I need you every hour. That common need draws us together and brings us really into one body. And that is a great, great church. That is a great Christian that would have that kind of relationship. You know, when I went to Israel back in, uh, when I was at seminary, there was this town in Jordan called uh, Magadha, and they have one of the oldest and the most beautiful mosaics there. So there's a floor in the church of these broken shards of glass that are all kind of uh, pressed together to form this picture of Jerusalem. It's an absolutely beautiful, it's a beautiful mosaic on the floor of this ancient church. But what's remarkable is that nothing's remarkable about it. Mosaics aren't remarkable in and of themselves. They're just broken pieces or pieces of glass or pottery. But when they're put together, then they form this picture that is quite extraordinary. It's really a picture of the church. Individually, what do we have that we haven't received? And yet collected together around the gospel, there is a great, great unity. So we're called to receive one another. I also am impressed by the, throughout Scripture, we don't do this anymore, but the early church, when they practiced it, Paul writes and he says, greet one another with a kiss. Can you imagine the social revolution that would have happened in the early church when you had a high-brow, educated, wealthy, perhaps politician, come into the sanctuary with just a common laborer that couldn't read or write, and... The instruction is, greet one another with a kiss. Receive them in my name, and you're receiving me. That's the encouragement. When you move in this way, we're actually ministering to Christ. Imagine. That's what this church is called to. This is the greatness we're called to. A oneness, a unity around the gospel. Okay, the second thing you see is in 6 and 7, this is a little more of a protecting. So accepting, accepting one another. I'm asking you to... Ask yourselves, how broad are your relationships? How willing are you to open up your lives to those that are different than you? And how will that be demonstrated? How will you invite people? Can you invite someone into your home? This is a, this is a simple challenge to you. What are we going to do with this? You now know this, but to not act on this means you'll probably forget about it in about three days. But if you begin to act on it, then it's going to become part of you. Okay, the second the second portrait of greatness, if you will, is 6 and 7. Notice what it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. 
Okay, this is more of the, the responsibility. What does greatness look like? Greatness looks like us being concerned about the spiritual development of those around us. Let me say it again. What greatness is displayed here is that we actually have a concern for the spiritual development of one another, particularly those who are young in the faith. Now you see here the warning, it says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. Now what does this mean? Well, it says in your text, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now the word for sin there is to stumble. He's saying that if you live and speak and act in a way that causes others to stumble, that there's a clear warning for you. So, so the injunction here is don't cause people to stumble. The way you live, the way you speak, the way you behave, the, the truths and the doctrines that you hold, don't be a means of causing another to stumble. What does it mean to stumble? Well, I think you know what it means to stumble. You trip over something, you fall down. The people are trying to follow Christ, and yet you're putting obstacles in their way that they trip on and fall off the path. To cause someone to stumble is to, is to slide them away from a devotion to Christ. To cause them to stumble is perhaps to introduce maybe freedoms in your life, but they become destructive behaviors in their life, and they move off the path of following God in righteousness. So he's saying here, don't cause anyone to stumble. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's all kinds of ways we cause people to stumble, direct and indirect ways. I mean, some of it is just in contrast to verse 5. Don't, don't receive people. Reject them. If they're not your theological stripe, if they're not your social order, then don't accept them. I mean, ignore them. Be indifferent to them. Pass them by. I mean, don't open up your life. That's one way, because people are wondering, well, I thought the gospel united us. And they're trying to figure out, they're new in the faith, they're trying to figure out the gospel, and yet they're being ignored or treated indifferently by somebody. That causes people to wonder, to, com- to be confused, or hypocrisy in our lives. I mean, we preach this, but we practice this. This has, been the, this has been one of the primary reasons why many kids don't follow in the faith of their parents. It causes them to stumble because they're trying to figure it out. It's not mean-spirited. They're trying to figure out, well, hold it now, he says this, but he does that. Well, how does that create obstacles for people in the faith? Or perhaps it's not that. It may be that you have certain freedoms in your life that you do rightly enjoy but they do become hindrances for other people. Are we willing to lay down our rights for the freedoms that we have so as to not cause others to stumble? Or perhaps, as I said, it might be indifference. We cause people to stumble by our our uninvolvement in their life. We don't pray for them. We don't seek them out. We don't engage them. We've got our own cadre of friends, and that's all we need. So there's a lot of ways that we can cause people to stumble. Here's Jesus' point. Take heed lest we fall. In other words, the warning is this. He says it's better. This is a severe warning. I, I kept praying that we would get the weight of this and not get the weight so much that we'd miss the point. The warning is that it is better. He's giving us a comparison here. It would be better for you. In, in, in other words, instead of causing them to stumble, if you have the option, is what he's saying, to cause someone to stumble or to have this giant millstone. Now, what a millstone is, it's an upper stone. People would have them in their homes. They're small. You could turn them, and you would grind grain. This is a giant millstone. So this is probably made for a town. This is the heavy one that needs like a donkey or some beast of burden to turn it, and the townspeople would come and put their grain between the stones, and it would crush it, and then they could go prepare their food. 
that if you were to go out into the middle of the ocean and have a giant millstone as a necklace and jump into the sea, you would have a quick, certain, watery grave. Jesus is saying, that is a better end than causing another to stumble. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, that is incredible. What do we take away from that? How are we great? What does greatness look like for us when you look at 6 and 7? Well, one thing would be great is to remind yourself of the seriousness of sin. To consider the threat to the community, and particularly to the young believer, of, of what sin does to our relationship with God. To not minimize it, rationalize it, redefine it, explain it away, excuse it away, but to take it with utter seriousness and to recognize that it's a deep threat. That Jesus is, is giving us a comparative analysis here, and he's saying you'd rather drown with a rock around your neck than do this. So I think we need to become a little more sober to the issues of sin. But also, I want you to see in this what greatness looks like is, is for you to understand the social fabric of a church. In other words, you cannot, I think what Jesus is saying here is, that you will grow and thrive and persevere collectively, not individually. In other words, there is no, in Scripture, you will not find this idea of Jesus and me walking out my spiritual life. You always see it in the context of community. So, so for those of us who think, well, periodic church involvement, abandon the idea that you can periodically be involved with other Christians and still be a Christian. I would encourage you, abandon that idea. Abandon the idea that I can come to church on Sunday morning and I can listen to the sermons and have some basic interaction with folks on the way in and the way out, and I'm going to be okay. Abandon that. I mean, let that go like a rock in high seas. I mean, what he's saying here is there has to be an intimacy, a... a, an involvement in the lives of other people. This is why we encourage small groups. Small groups are a good platform in which to engage the lives of other people, that we're kind of working with each other through this thing called life. It's not easy. Life is complicated. It's hard. It's filled with temptations. He said that. He said it's inevitable that temptations are going to come. We just don't want to be the ones to whom they come. Listen to what John Stott said about the church. I I, I think, and, and you know, we try to promote the need for us to move collectively as a body, not as just a large group of individuals. John Stott says this, one of our chief evangelical blind spots has been to overlook the central importance of the church. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. We emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity rather than to purify himself a people of his own. We think of ourselves more as Christians rather than churchmen or churchwomen. And our message is more good news of a new life than of a new society. Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with a privatized gospel. I mean, this is what we're driving for here. That we would be a great church. And a great church recognizes that apart from our mutual involvement in the life of one another, as thorny as that can be, I know it, we're a bunch of oddballs, and it is very difficult to get along with everybody, but the reality of it is that the goofiness that you see in others is what you need. And by the way, your goofiness is what they need. Let me just read a quote from John Wesley. This came from his journal, and it's his personal testimony towards the end of his life on the nature of the church and how it served him in terms of protecting his faith. He said, I know of no other place under heaven 
where I can have friends always at hand of the same judgment, engaged in the same studies, persons who are awakened into a full conviction that they have but one work to do upon this earth, who see at a distance what that one work is, even the recovery of a single eye and a clean heart, who in order to do this have, according to their own power, absolutely devoted themselves to God and follow after their Lord, denying themselves and taking up their cross daily. To have even a small number of such friends constantly watching over my soul and administering as need as the need is, reproof or advice with all plainness and gentleness is a blessing I know not where to find in any part of the kingdom. So we need that here. I think sometimes, you know, the quickest growing churches uh, in, in theological language and in, in uh, clerical language is these homogeneous churches. We're all 23 and we're all white and we all like loud music. And that church grows really fast. But that's not the church. The church is to be a mixture of people. That's the whole point of this text. A great church is this cross-section of color, ages, educational background. And so we're called to protect that faith of one another. And then thirdly and last would be in 8 and 9. So we're called to accept one another in Jesus and thereby ministering to Jesus. We're called to protect one another in looking at our lives and not putting stumbling blocks in other, way, in other people's way. And then there's this repenting. That's the third point, repenting. Look what he says in 8 and 9. Because he's going to shift here. He's going to move away from this idea of watching over the faith of others to watching over your own faith. There is a time you have to watch over what you believe and how you're living. Look what he says here. And again, please don't make this a metaphor too quick before the weight of it can land on you. He says, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands. And remember, he's talking to an agrarian society here. He's talking to farmers. You cut the foot off a farmer. That's serious. You cut off the hand of a farmer. You try to farm with one arm. That would be incredibly difficult. Or he says, pluck your eye out and get on with life. That's a very difficult thing. He says, but it's better to do that. It's better to do that than to continue to sin in this way. I want you to see he shifts now. Don't just look at other the faith of others, and how, but look at your own life. And what's interesting is he's speaking here, and this is for you grammarians, you'll love this, but he's speaking in the second person singular. He's saying you individually. He's not speaking collectively like now. Each one of us needs to look at our own life and see where are these areas of weakness in my life that lead me to perhaps fall away from God. It's a soul watch. You're watching over your own soul. Now, of course, I want you to see this as a hyperbole. It's not literal. Jesus isn't calling for self-mutilation or self-amputation. He's trying to call us to repentance. But he's, he is encouraging us to be investigative, taking our own soul to task so that we can repent. And look at the threat that is laid out before us. There is heaven and hell in the balance. Now, I want to warn you, he's talking to his apostles, and they've been converted, and he still warns them. How do you figure that? I don't know. I think he's calling us to just practice repentance, and the persevering of repentance indicates that we've been called by God. So here, this self-watch, you're called to watch over your own soul. Let me, let me ask you, without you answering me out loud, but when was the last time you reviewed your life in terms of, is God honored by how you're being a husband or a wife or a friend or a student or a child? 
mean, have you taken stock of my motivations and my actions and, and giving thought to those things? Why do I react the way I react? And, and has it led you to repentance or you just pass on and not think about it? Remember the quote I gave you from last week? If we are constantly focused on the outer life, contemplation and reflection will be very difficult to embrace. So what do we do here? How do we watch over our souls? Well, let me just give you a couple points. So as I said, we want to accept, we want to protect, and we want to repent. But first, I, want, I would ask you to consider just looking at your life and trying to both identify and admit the areas that you struggle. Where is the point of struggle for you? Is it discontentment over what you have? Is it bitterness over past hurts? Is it, is it more lustfulness? You know, in this survey done out of the readership of Desiring God, 8,000 people were surveyed. These are Christians reading a fairly robust theological website. People, men over 60, uh, 15% met, admit an ongoing pornography issue. 15% over 60. That's like grandfather. 20% for men over their 50s. 25 for men in their 40s. 30% for those in the 30s. 50%, nearly 50% of self-professing Christian men age 18 to 29 acknowledge ongoing use of porn. Now that's the, that's the button today because of the internet. But, but, but don't, don't just... Use that as the only indicator of, of what might be a weak spot in your life. I mean, identify, it might be anger, it might be bitterness, it might be jealousy, it might be your body, that you're just consumed with where your body is. But wherever these weak spots are in your life, folks, we have to identify them and then not excuse them, admit them. You know, recognize, you know, this is a struggle for me. And once you admit it, then you have to be ready to confront it. That we have to look at this as, quite serious. Jesus doesn't ask, uh, ask us to manage our sin. So here's the way Tom Mercer can deal with sin. I can look at it, and eh, the collateral damage isn't too bad, and so I'm going to go ahead and manage it. It doesn't seem to cause a lot of disruption in my family or my life, and so I'm going to manage it. I'm not going to be ruthless about it. I'm not going to go after it and confess it to Carol or to confess it to God and confess it to the elders and the staff. I'm just going to keep it quiet. It's not that big a deal. I'm going to keep it over here in the corner. That's not the way to confront it. John Owen, the great theologian of the 16th century, said, if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. It's that simple. And I know, and you think, well, it's not that simple. It is that simple. Now, I know that there are gradations of sin that some have a greater immediate social impact than other sins, but the reality is they all cumulatively move to the same spot, which is to move you off. So be ready to confront it and then repent. And what I mean by repent is that the word itself means to change direction, but I would say with repentance, there's a sorrow. God, I've sinned against you. God, I'm sorry. I brought shame. Jesus died for that, and I'm wallowing and, frankly, enjoying it. God, forgive me for that. And then I confess it. So I, I, I feel contrition, I feel sorrow, and then I confess it. God, forgive me. I mean, even if you're not a Christian here, this is the way you enter the Christian faith, by you recognize you're a sinner. And you recognize you need God. And so you confess your sins that you've lived this life of cosmic rebellion, having given a rip about God my life, and now his existence is being placed before me, and I need to repent by his grace and seek forgiveness. But for the Christian here, this is repentance for us. 
It's like taking the garbage out. I mean, we don't let that. We don't. We didn't do it one time in our marriage. We do it all the time. Take the garbage. Why? Because we sin. We're in this world. First John tells us, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth of God is not in you. But if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope that we have. And then, and then so you want to acknowledge, admit it. You want to confront it and repent from it. And then, and then you want to consider heaven and hell. Look what Jesus is doing here. You know, Jesus speaks more about hell than any other preacher does. Oftentimes, and, and as Nick welcomes folks, that maybe not, if you don't come to church regularly, oh no, we're talking about hell again. Well, you know, it is an act of grace if it exists. Let's just put that forth. If hell exists, isn't it gracious to speak about it? I mean, wouldn't it be the epitome of indifference and hatred to know that something exists and never talk about it? And people find it and they were never warned. So it's grace that Jesus gives us these warnings. He's not trying to, you can't scare people into heaven. You know, we don't, we don't use hell as a tactic to scare people. God's spirit has to draw you to himself. We know that. No one can come to me except those whom the, the Father draws. But, but the reality is that, that hell wakes us to a reality that we can live blind to for a long time. And so consider here, he, pushes, he puts before us, he says, Cut it off and enter life where you'll be restored to wholeness and glory or you have the threat of hell. And again, he's speaking to the church now about this threat, legitimate threat. I'm not going to try to tease out if you're wondering, oh, no, he's going to figure out and, and reconcile these two. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say it's there. It's a serious warning. So we have three portraits of what it means to be great, both in your life but in the life of this church. And that is accepting. Are we known by, do we have friendships with people that are vastly different than us? Are we protecting? Are we mindful about encouraging the faith, developing the faith of others, and not putting stones of stumbling in their life? And then thirdly, are we repenting? Do we practice the ongoing work of cleansing our soul from the things that we do? Again, this is not heavy in the sense that he's laying this out for us to respond to. This isn't an ultimatum in the sense of you have no exit ramp here. So let's just take a minute, if we can, in, in silent reflection and look at your own life for just a minute and quietly come before God. And we want to use this time that you've heard the word and now what we as a leadership team are trusting is that God's spirit is going to take this word and apply it into your soul to do the work that he wants to do in you. And then um, Ray is going to close us in prayer.